Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The main team. Mega Bears fan. A composite show, archive segments from previous episodes that got cut due to time. Episode 314 with Dan Q, Akalua, the Mian team, and Mega Bears fan. So the first thing about governments is the chiefdom government, where he just says he doesn't recommend any specific policies for the military policy slot. He just says to slot in whatever helps you defend your units and fight barbarians nearby, because, you know, barbarians are always enabled in multiplayer games. We'll just refer back to, yes, how we said previously, yeah. Unless you're going to be running the policy card discipline for when fighting barbarians. Then he says, otherwise you may find some goody huts. You may want to run survey, which is double experience for recon units. But in a multiplayer context, you're probably just going to be running one of the ones that gives you production bonus for military units for the military slot. Uh, What is it called? The goji? Is that how you say it? Yeah, the plus 50%, uh, yeah, production for a year, melee, and uh, And then switch to mounted units once you can start building mounted units, because chariots and horsemen are pretty boss at the start of the game. It depends what you're going, though, because if you're going into swordsmen quickly, then you'll probably uh, probably just run the booster for melee and range and switch into maintenance or something else. Well, unless you already have a bunch of warriors that you can upgrade and you don't need to build anymore. And yeah, even but, then, unless you are in multiplayer, you're always building units. So, well, no, it, like unless you're anticipating getting hit like right now, yeah, you, you might want to use that bonus to knock out those warriors. Yeah, to get yourself some marchers. Yeah, because if you're not going to immediately press somebody with the warriors or the swords or defend yourself with those immediately, it makes more sense to save on the production and invest your early production into something else that you're not going to get the boost to get afterwards. You do need the scalp, though, so you're going to need to build some units immediately. But <laughs> the more you can get with the policy card bonus and swapping around, the better. Uh, a lot of the micro skill in this game comes down to your timing of your policy cards and uh, how efficiently uh, you're getting your production to work for you. Uh, so, but that is a, a crucial card for the early game and similar equivalents to it later are also helpful. In any case, you will almost certainly not be wanting to run survey. I mean, is it even worth doing without goody huts in the game? Um, <laughs> it's available before the others. And if you don't have barbarians on, there's no point in taking the policy card that lets you fight barbarians more effectively. Well, true. So you just yeah. kind of default to it for like a few turns until you, know, right. you get something better, basically. And- if you get lucky, you stumble across a natural wonder and get a promotion for your unit yes. before you switch out. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So survey it. And then as far as the economic policy slot in Chieftain. Strategy says you're going to want to run God King till you've got your Pantheon. And even if you're not going for religious play, Pantheons are still very valuable. I God, agree as well. God King is definitely something to look at. 
after which either urban planning or Ilkum or colonization. So yeah, I have to say I run urban planning a lot while it's available because that one production in every city is pretty tough thing to beat early in the game when you're still getting most of your structures from production rather than from gold purchases. It's certainly helpful, but if you are building like multiple settlers, you need to run colonization. Yeah, and that makes yeah, a you... huge difference, and it's going to absolutely save hammers by an amount that destroys what you would get in bonus from the plus one to all cities. But again, this is stuff you can plan around based on your initial scouting. Right, you switch into that for one or two civics while you build your builders or your uh, settlers, and then you switch back out to urban planning, especially since you're going to need that plus one production in the new city that you're about to plop down, unless you want to spend 40 turns building your water mill. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's that. I mean, you may decide that you're still better off with colonization at certain points because it's like, okay, I founded that city. Okay, I've got a warrior. I've got an archer there to defend it from your military policy slot. I still want to be able to settle spots. I want that plus 50% production towards settlers because you'll be able to construct the settlers more quickly. And then Ilkum, the, the plus 30% production towards builders, I find is even more situational. Like, I think that there's a time for colonization and then there's a time for that urban planning where where overall, you'll probably, depending upon your circumstances in MP and other players, you'll probably run urban planning more, but you'll probably have a time for colonization and Ilkum might be, you know what, I could go ahead and I could run urban planning now after colonization, but if I take Ilkum and the builders can get to these other cities because they're relatively close and there's stuff to chop, for example, or there's something to harvest and then running Magnus as your governor in that city, I might actually be farther ahead in terms of the production to run that for a particular point in time. But there's definitely more to watch for, I think, early on in Chieftain with regards to your economic policy slots as compared to the militaristic policy card slots. And even urban planning, Ilkum, and colonization can be useful once you get to your tier one governments as well, certainly more often than, say, either discipline or survey for military. Speaking of tier one governments, oligarchy is the truth. <laughs> it is described as the most well-rounded tier one government in the game. Yes, since it has a card for militaristic, economic, diplomatic, and wild card. Although, again, I've got to just throw in there, single player, the fact that there's a diplomatic policy card is fantastic. But if we're talking about not running city-states in multiplayer, the fact that it has a diplomatic policy slot is something that would not do anything practically anyway. But the fact that there's militaristic, economic, and wild card, and quite frankly, it's not about which card slot oligarchy has in multiplayer. It really has something to do with this additional combat strength yeah. <laughs> that you get while running it. Not to mention the legacy bonus policy, which you could also be running on top of districts. You get your encampment up and your great general points. And then plus there's also the wildcard policy where you could run for plus two great general points as well. It's fantastic. But just wanted to mention that the diplomatic thing there, based on how we're arguing, you probably want to set up a multiplayer that you can just ignore that. There are some policies you can put into diplomatic slots that are not city-state related later, yeah, right? But later, yeah. Loyalty from governors, I think. Yeah, yeah it's it takes not going to be that impactful because, you know, your first few cities are probably not going to be running into loyalty problems unless you forward settled someone. And by the time you'd be able to get those cards, you're probably looking at a tier two government now anyway. If you are willing to transition into one, if you're fighting somebody who's on par with you, scratching your unit strength at that kind of timing can be a problem. It's an interesting balance. I actually don't mind it, but 
<laughs> you are better off if you're not fighting running a tier two government. If you are fighting, though, you can make a case for staying in oligarchy. Yes, absolutely. Uh, particularly, but not just if you're on tech parity, because then that can give you that added advantage. It's true that you don't have to be running oligarchy to run oligarchic legacy, but if you want that added combat bonus that comes with oligarchy, you're going to give that up to go to another tier one government or to any tier two government, and you're really not looking at a bonus to your military, again, until you get into tier three governments. And as talked about later in the guide, not a lot of multiplayer games actually get to that point. Or if they do to get to that point, things are generally getting to the point of being decided anyway about how things are going around. So yeah. oligarchy is and is tied into the, of course, the strategy guide that we're talking about here. Unless you are kind of by yourself, all by, and then in which case classical republic becomes more desirable, oligarchy is probably going to be your go-to more often than not in terms of tier one governments in multiplayer. Yeah. I would not run oligarchy if you're isolated or something. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> or maybe like you switch into it before switching into something else so you can use the oligarchic legacy. Yeah. But uh, I definitely I would not run this if I don't anticipate fighting something significant. You would want to switch to oligarchy in the point where you've got your government plaza up and you're about to complete your first government plaza building because then you are going to want to be in oligarchy so you actually get that legacy bonus capability as opposed to if you're in classical republic or autocracy and you finish that first building in government plaza it's going to give you that legacy bonus for the government you're in so as long as you watch that timing then that's that's no problem you could be in classical republic oh uh i would like to actually have that so switch over to oligarchy and then perhaps you're ready for the tier two government bonus at that point. So you don't even have to worry about, oh, now I want to go back to classical Republic, except I'm going to have these turns of anarchy, which can hardly ever think of any time that I run into that in Civ Six because I don't go back. Yeah, I was about to say that as well. Yeah. And it quote unquote may only be a couple of turns, but particularly when most multiplayer is in online play, let alone the fact that I think a lot of us here on the panel run online play even for single player those couple of turns of anarchy can be actually pretty brutal yeah that just can set you back so much you wouldn't realize except when you play at the higher speeds two turns is a lot two turns is like 10 turns on a different level we kind of covered the strengths already the justifier in his guide says that the weakness of oligarchy is as the jack of all master of none <laughs> Quote, since the specifics of oligarchy, though really well-rounded, are not perfectly suited for all situations, unquote. Well, I think they are perfectly suited for the situation where you're up against an opponent right here and right now, but... <laughs> says it cannot compete with other government types in specific situations such as expansion and infrastructure. Okay, yes, in specific situations. Then, as we talked about, classical republic, okay, which is the next thing that they talk about when you're peaceful or you see a period of peace because you've got those scouts out, you've explored, you know what is around you, and you realize what is around you is not someone immediately, then yes. And I do also enjoy the characterization that it is quote-unquote essentially pure SimCity, which ah, <laughs> uh, SimCity well, when you were good. Ah, uh, the good old days. Yeah. So, I mean, the weaknesses, because you don't have the militaristic policy slot, puts a target on your back. I actually enjoy this, and it's very apt for a multiplayer context targeted because you can tell if someone is running classical republic via the great person screen even if you've not met them if anyone is making 2.3 great general points towards any great person for example you know they're running that government type and you know which player they are via their name in the description as well as the knowledge that they are a threat if left alone to sim 
Yeah, just let me sit over here and accumulate all the great people. It'll be fine, right? Yeah, no, guys, I, you know, totally already have up and running my encampment and a barracks and in multiple cities. In a couple of cities, I've got both of those online. I'm not running Classical Republic, really. You could probably bait someone by running Classical Republic and then putting, a, you know, the military card in the wild card slot. Oh, yeah, you could do that. I don't know how effective that would be, but something you could do. That would be something that could be effective up until the point that you're engaging in combat, in which case, surprise, I've been running Classical Republic now that you're here. Oh, you're an oligarchy now. Oh, just remember to do that. Right, because by the time the person gets there, you can pop a Civic and switch to oligarchy, and if you were running that military policy card in your wild card slot, you could have a big army, and now you've got that plus four combat bonus when the enemy actually shows up, while in the meantime, you were running two economic policies and getting up districts and stuff like that and trade routes. I don't know that it necessarily makes someone easy prey because of how easy it is to switch governments. Now, if the person was an oligarchy before... And then switches to Classical Republic, and then if they were to switch back to Oligarchy, then they would have to suffer a turn or two of Anarchy, in which case, yeah, now they're in big trouble if they've got an enemy at their gates. And the target on your back for Classical Republic would also apply to those in multiplayer who are aware of this, because it's not intuitive to me that as, as a player you would necessarily notice this. I think most people who are playing multiplayer, it's not just bought the game today and, hey, let's call it multiplayer. But even if you're well-versed in single player, you might not even be paying attention to that. But if you're in any kind of random match situation in a league or out of, it's good to know this because it's quite possible that you might not know about it, but your opponent does. And if your opponent knows about it, then just be informed. Uh, Speaking of being informed, oh, autocracy. I don't think I ever use autocracy. I just really do not want two military slots because in most cases, I don't have more than one city that's reliably pumping out military units that early in the game anyway. So I can't build a warrior and a chariot in the same city at the same time. So, yeah, you could make a case, though, especially since you can just switch into oligarchy after going this. And this does give you the potential to gun for a wonder that would be very helpful to you based on context uh, in the early game. I wonder if this is maybe even better if you are alone, because if you are alone and isolated, you have a little bit more freedom to go for wonders. I think it depends on what's around you, really. Yeah, uh, it's just having those two military slots when you're in a situation where you're not going to be doing much with your military is just really difficult to uh, reconcile. And justify given other choices. No. Yeah, but you can run something like the unit producing bonus and then the maintenance reduction or something early yeah. on and then switch over. But that, again, the conscription, the maintenance reduction, I think only applies if you have upgraded units because the basic slinger, warrior, and chariot archer, I think, do not yeah, ancient era cost don't. maintenance. That's true. That is true. So if you don't have at least one archer or at least one swordsman or at least one spearman, I would yes. not try to fight multiplayer opponents with spearmen, typically. You might like have like one or two to uh, screw with their horsemen if they're trying for stuff like that. Yeah, or camp them on your iron or whatever to make sure that a horse doesn't come and pillage it. It's true. Although, like, if you're playing with MP, I strongly recommend putting screening units, just like scouts or whatever, yeah. between you and your enemy so that you can actually see that kind of stuff coming. Yep. The most likely thing that might catch you off guard is a scout because it's scouting early and then it can be in all kinds of random places and approach your borders from a completely different direction to the Civ in question. It's not going to survive more than one or two uh, bombards from a city, though. But yeah, it, it, no, but it, it, like, it, it, <laughs> something, it can do some damage. 
Yeah, it would be really annoying if it pillaged something you're relying on, delayed it until you can get a builder over there, especially if you don't have a ton of money. <laughs> yeah, if it gets onto your iron or your horse, you know, yeah. resource and pillages that, you can be in big trouble. I'm sure people have this happen to them. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they do. <laughs> One interesting thing, though, that uh, Autocracy does have going for it, though, is that uh, in the context of a multiplayer game where you probably do not have city-states enabled, is it does not have a diplomatic policy slot at all so at least you don't have to worry about throwing away a policy slot on something that you're not going to be able to use relatedly to that point although in a different context the justifier who wrote this guide says that a strength of this is killing city-states where you're actively encouraged to simply remove them from the game to prevent other major civilizations from greatly benefiting from those city-states type bonuses or yeah just as we're saying just don't have them in the game at all so then you're not missing the fact that oh there's no diplomatic policy slot here. And then he also makes a strength argument for autocracy as keeping discipline for barbarians because of the other military policy slot, except as we talked about before, with those two, if you're by yourself, I mean, I I guess it's kind of one of those, if you had an initial opponent and you wipe them out and then you're waiting for somebody else to come around, if you've already got your legacy bonus, the problem with then going to autocracy, then of course going back to oligarchy if you need that additional combat strength, of course, is those turns of anarchy. So even then, autocracy is just kind of out there that it has specific advantages, but I really think it's going to almost always come down to, am I starting out in oligarchy, and am I staying in oligarchy for most of the game, or is it going to be I'm going to start out at oligarchy and then go to classical republic or autocracy? Probably not. Or am I just going to be in oligarchy later because I'm waiting for people to come to me or I'm waiting to actually find somebody to then engage in combat? Now, if you are able to get a second city up and running, you know, pretty quickly and have a decent production base in that city, then those two military policies could be really good because you could run the Agoji and uh, was it Maneuver and have one city popping melee ranged units and another city popping cavalry units. That's true. It would really depend. And, and I, I, it's kind of one of those things in this game where I look at, say, Horsemen, for example, and I think, oh, you know, I'm going to be able to cover more territory. Oh, wait, Horsemen have two movement. Oh. And it's kind of one of those things where I probably field more of those just to be able to cover more territory, to see what's going on, and to be able to actively monitor what's going on around me if someone shows up. Really, the mounted units come into play where it's, uh-oh, I don't have iron, so I'm not going to be able to get the swordsman, and now I'm in classical, and I need to fight with something better than warriors and something to go along with my archers, something to escort my battering rams, and I know there's catapults. We've talked about them before. (laughs) Maybe one day. Maybe one day. And then there are the the, the tier two government situations. So why don't we just say as a premise that for whatever reason you've decided oligarchy is no longer for you, that you are going to choose a Tier 2 government, although I think it's worthwhile, again, to reiterate reasons to actually stay in oligarchy. But let's consider the Tier 2 governments amongst themselves. Which one do you choose, or do you, in fact, decide to go to one and then possibly go to another one once you actually get farther down the civics tree and you get more Tier 2 government choices? The first one that you're going to probably have the option for, assuming that you choose this civic, because it's one of those dead-end civics, is the one that gives you monarchy. The guy talks about its strengths, early access, yep, extra military slots, ability to produce. So if you find yourself in a situation, you're going to want to rush monarchy to help get those extra units out after you've upgraded them. 
position and leads to a more powerful tier two government, whereas its weaknesses are, quote unquote, that it's weak. Easily the weakest of the three tier two governments as the major and minor bonuses as well as the legacy bonuses are dismissible and unlikely to be useful to you in most situations. And it's especially weak in multiplayer because your minor bonus, if you don't have city states enabled, that does nothing. If you don't have barbarians or goody huts enabled, then you don't need those three policy slots, military policies to run discipline or survey. So you run your military production stuff and conscription. So that's two, but I don't know what you're going to do with the third one. Maybe the loyalty. Uh, Stacking all the buffs to um, chopping makes this an interesting spot on the tech tray, though. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess you could maybe slot in if you got a coastal city, maritime, whatever, for the 100% production on a naval unit, just build a naval unit and then chop to get 100% chopping bonus on something else. With Magnus in the city. Uh, yeah. yeah, lots of overflow. Yeah, lots of overflow. But I just don't know if it justifies having monarchy for all its other weaknesses. Again, uh, literally not having a minor bonus, assuming city-states are disabled. And unless you're on the defensive, you're not going to have walls. Can't you run a policy card to chop those, too? Yeah, I think there's a 100% production towards wall. Yeah. I think it's called limes. That's right, limes. Human players are more capable of doing things you might not expect. And so having a little bit of extra padding, unanticipated approach lines wouldn't hurt. I mean, yeah, you're going to have scouting screens. You still want to buy some time. Hey, hey early warning signal. Uh, the early warning is there's five units incoming. Uh, <laughs> or more, most <laughs> likely. Yes. You're most likely going to have somebody rolling up with a battering ram, a healthy contingent of threatening melee units, and then some range support. <laughs> I mean, walls won't save you, but you might get a little bit longer to do something about it. But yeah, considering that monarchy tends to come into play a little bit earlier than the other tier two governments, I mean, you can switch into it early, use it to pop some walls, and then switch out of it when you get one of the other tier twos unlocked. The only problem is you're giving a oligarchy, but yeah, sometimes that's merited. Yeah, it's true. But you could still be running the oligarchic legacy in your uh, wildcard slot, so there's at least that. Yeah. Plus four. It's for melee. It's still very good, but... Yeah. Yeah. All right, theocracy, described as a trade-off, not as power's merchant republic, but as more powerful than monarchy due to its extra economic slot. Strengths, desirable civic path. Versatility, I'm going to scratch out the versatility right here just because capable of usage for multiple strategies from religious to cultural. Since to domination, theocracy can cover them all, even science if you have Jesuit education. Okay, yes, but typically speaking, multiplayer, you're going to win or lose based on domination. Speaking of theocracy weaknesses, not the most versatile. While flexible, this government type will never be flexible as Merchant Republic's plus one wild card just because of the nature of the civics card. Pathetic major bonus. To be frank, plus five combat for religious units is a joke in multiplayer. In the 5,000 plus hours I've played multiplayer, I've had an actual religious war once, and it was versus a player who was specifically coached on what I was doing to get a religious victory and walked through exactly how to counter that. And heavy cavalry overflow strategies. This is a carryover from Monarchy. If you've researched Monarchy, then you've lost access to the Maneuver Policy card, and you can no longer have the ability to use overflow strategies with it in the mid to late game. I mean, he does say it's actually comparable to Merchant Republic and Power due to the simple fact that you will very likely be running two military policy cards, regardless if you're running Merchant Republic or not. It's also desirable to get the Civics Guild as early as possible, and an early two government as soon as possible, which means getting Monarchy first. But... Uh, unless there was like an always peace option, or we agreed, hey guys, why don't we go ahead and try to go for a religious victory, then I don't know why you would choose this over monarchy. 
or waiting for Merchant Republic? Again, setting aside the, well, why don't you just stay in oligarchy question. Quite honestly, I just skip this, especially considering it's one of those leaf texts that goes absolutely nowhere to get theocracy. I mean, there are some policies that you might want there, but I'm not going to be researching the civic for a theocracy itself. What are those policies again? The policies that you get from Reformed Church, which is what gives you theocracy, the policies themselves are wars of religion, plus four combat strength and fighting civilizations that follow other religions. You also get all religious units get plus five religious strength and theological combat from religious orders, and double faith yield from holy site district buildings. So these policies aren't even worth getting. That's not true. If you are running a religion and somebody else is running a different religion, that's pretty significant. You might slot that in. In multiplayer, there's a substantial chance that you have a religion. And if you do, this is worth considering because you get the double faith for uh, some extra unit buying potential and sometimes buildings, too, depending on what you've invested. But, but also just the combat bonus. You're getting more policy slots while retaining something comparable. You're going to have something comparable to oligarchy. Well, not an oligarchy in tier two times. That's not that bad. Yeah, with, with the religious wars policy and the oligarchic legacy, I mean... You've got the same combat bonus, just you don't have the oligarchy one on all your units. You only have them on melee. Yeah. And you've got an extra military slot and uh, still only would have one economic slot in that context because the other one's being used for the wars. So a reason for theocracy, but not a really a reason for any of these specific policies. So yeah, if you've got a religion and they have a different religion, I suppose... Yeah, without you a took Jesuit of- education, double faith is very worth... I, I- <laughs> and not only then, like there are other things you could be running where faith buying is useful. These are not junk policy cards. They're situational. Yes. There will be games where you do not want to bother with this whatsoever. But when these things make sense, this is a very worthwhile uh, pickup and switch. There's other situations as well where if you are playing a multiplayer game where city states are enabled and you have near you or at least in a position where you can become their suzerain reliably, that one city state that lets you build buildings with faith, running double faith in a theocracy government is better than production. Yeah, yeah there's a lot to like here, potentially. Yeah, if you've, if you've been stuck out in like one of those areas of the map where you don't have a lot of production, then using theology for production is a really great idea because that can happen with some maps and certainly with some civs your faith output could easily outstrip what you get from merchant republic and trade routes and such and speaking of the other tier two government type merchant republic described as its strength as versatile extra wild card slot and a strong minor bonus but that its weakness is it takes about 10 turns longer to get merchant republic than monarchy so that's 10 turns where you could be building your government district building and getting your tier two government district building online usually meaning a spy and legacy bonus is lackluster I, I like merchant republic in single player context but in a multiplayer context you're probably better off just staying in oligarchy unless you have a specific reason to go to monarchy or even theocracy as described and then if you actually get the tier three then get the tier three other than the fact that there is that extra wild card slot so maybe worthwhile but it doesn't seem as situationally specific as either monarchy or in particular theocracy yeah. Merchant Republic used to be stronger. Yeah. Called, like, watch me buy a two. Navy. Yeah. I mean, if you've got a decent economic output, then a 10% discount on buying stuff is actually pretty good, which, of course, includes military units. But at a certain point in time, it's like, you know what? I can only field so many units on the map, and I'm probably just better off having those units be stronger because then they're less likely to die, and then I don't have to buy more. <laughs> 
I suppose if you did spend a lot of the early game building units and haven't really built up many districts yet, then a district production bonus might be advantageous. And then lastly, tier three governments, if you actually get to that point, <laughs> and even under the democracy rundown, Justifier says it can be rare that players will get to tier three governments in multiplayer, quote unquote. Yeah. And I would argue you're more likely to get to a tier three if you have one of these advanced start things. Uh, but I don't know how prevalent those are in, in multiplayer, but excluding <laughs> that. Mr. Ew, advanced start. It's more like, ugh, advanced starts, not ew, but maybe that's just, you know, semantics. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Ah, democracy strengths. Tons of slots for economic with variety of options of your wild cards for any specific situations. It's weakness. Major and minor bonuses are extremely lackluster. Only one military policy card, which means you're going to be running military cards in your wild card slots, removing the versatility that democracy brings to the table. Fascism. Mm. Currently the strongest, and put in bold, government type in the game for domination and defense versus someone who's using this. You're basically forced to use it as well just due to overflow strategies while running this government type and the raw power of plus 10 combat strength. Fascism strength, military, yeah. Whether defense or offense, that plus 10 combat, then plus 50% production is also massive as at this stage of the game. He also describes the science using overflow strategies with plus 50% production at this stage of the game can then be translated into a different victory type scientific. I wouldn't necessarily apply this strength to a scientific victory type, but you may just want that science boost in order to get yourself a competitive advantage for the units that you're running on the field. Its negatives are the policy cards you're hurting because they're lacking variety. You'll constantly find yourself having to trade off on two very important civic cards just to fit in the most important. If you're attacking or defending, you're going to want Fascist Legacy on this as well. And lacking a variety in civic cards, most militaristic and almost nothing else while running this. Well, I think for that reason, if you're not worried militaristically for whatever reason, then maybe you're choosing a different Tier 3 government type, or you're holding on to a Tier 2 government type. But man, oh man, whether it's going on the offense or described as you know having an offensive defense, fascism is pretty darn powerful, and we know in terms of multiplayer, you're talking about combat that is going to win the day. It's going to be domination. So in multiplayer, I expect this is your general go-to Tier 3 government. Communism. Well-rounded communism is great for a science victory as you're getting percentage production towards everything. Main cities will be getting a little extra production if they have governors in them. So you have options in both economic and militaristic uh, card slots. He also talks about the versatile minor bonus plus 15% production towards district projects. And then its weaknesses. Weak major bonus. They'll combine with this legacy bonus. It can be quite significant. Not many wild card or diplomatic card slots. And weak spies. Well, I'm not really going to hold that against communism because espionage in Civilization VI is lacking, I would argue. Has it ever not been lacking? Uh, Civ IV. There's a lot of micromanagement in Civ IV, but yeah. It was a lot of micro, but it was freaking broken. (laughs) Yeah. Anything else on the governments from the MP strategy guide? I would just like to make one little recommendation to the author, uh, Justifier. If you're listening in the future, you should probably put what text or civics unlock things when you're talking about them, just as a reference for players who are reading so they know how to get to it. And it's also advantageous that, as was described before, when you're talking about your government strategies, you are listing specifically what that government gives you in terms of bonuses. But in making references to the legacy and even the specific policy cards, recognize that this is already elsewise in your guide. But if you don't include specifically, say, for example, oh, I don't remember what uh, urban planning gives me. Oh, that's plus one production in all of my cities. Either mention that specifically or link to elsewhere in your guide just in terms of a reference, because then that just minimizes 
I think the need to, okay, so I need to have the Civil PD open in the game, or I need to have another tab open to another site, but all in all, well covered. Quarter for episode 323 with Dan Q, Bakalua, the mean team, and Mega Bears fan. Districts as a blank canvas from Kurt Bob. Take away the uniqueness of districts and treat them as blank canvases. As you read this idea, please understand that numerous additional changes would probably be required to make it functional. But before I present my ideas, I think it's best to lay out the functions of districts, buildings, and wonders as they presently are, quote-unquote. What Kurt then does is he talks about these eight things as they presently are, and then he contrasts them with the details of my idea. So rather than going, I'm going to read 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and then let's talk about 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, I'll say what it is that he says about their current function, like do one, and then his suggestion for one. So, one, districts are unique in name, bonuses, and buildings, and are unlocked at different techs and civics. His idea, quote, districts are no longer unique. A player can only build a general, quote-unquote, district. The district does not produce yields or bonuses. It is not restricted in placement, save that it must be within the constructing city's borders, including water tiles. It covers up the underlying tile features, forests removed, tiles yields removed, etc. Luxury and strategic resources are still available when a city builds a district over them. Districts become available immediately following the founding of a player's first city, no tech or civic required, and buildings and wonders still become available through progression of the tech and civics trees. And already I'm thinking, I feel... Ah, oh, there's this, this initial sense of relief. Oh, I don't have to worry about what kind of district I'm constructing right now. I'm just setting aside land for a district. But when I'm setting aside land for a district, I'm taking into account what kind of district it is that I am constructing because that has connections to other things I'm going to be doing, which, for example, includes adjacency bonuses based on that type. I know I'm going to want this district, once it's completed, to be generating something. Because as he says, the district does not produce yields or bonuses, which would make sense if it's a general district, because how would you know what yield or bonus to say it's generating if you don't know what type it is? But right away, I'm thinking, if you don't know what kind of district you want right now, and it's not producing yields or bonuses, then why would we just not construct a district and wait until we know what kind of district we do want and then go and place it. I realize this is only step one, but right away I'm thinking, I don't know why I would want to do this. Why would I want to take this step? Why would I want to construct a district, which implies that this is what my city is constructing, and it's giving me absolutely nothing at the end of X number of turns? Why would I do that when I could actually be using my production to, I don't know, construct a unit? Like, what is the advantage to this based on step one? I'm not there. Yeah. Is it just me? No. It makes the adjacency bonus thing a little more questionable to me, too, but maybe there's an answer in there. Maybe there's an answer in there. Okay, so right away, I'm, I'm a question mark. Question mark. All right. As it is right now, as described by Kurt Bob, a city can build additional districts once it reaches certain population thresholds. Okay, every three citizens. All right. There are no restrictions, he says, to the number of districts a city can produce in his suggestion. A city does not need to meet any thresholds prior to building a new district. Hmm. Okay, well, that's really not helping with my issue with one at all, because there's no strategy here. There's no meaningful choice here yet, but okay, maybe step three will finally start to bring this together. 
As it stands right now, a city can only build each district type once and therefore each building type once. That's right. You're only going to have one campus district in a city. There's going to be one library, etc., etc., within that district. Okay. A city can build any building in a district. Example, a city can build a workshop and a library in the same district. Buildings do not have prerequisites with the exception of techs and civics. For example, you can build a university in a district without first building a library. A city can build any number of unique buildings within a district. For example, you can build four libraries in one district. And now I've gone from question mark to why. Why would I want to do this? I'm trying to suspend the, but that's not how it is in Civ 6, and it's good that it's this way in Civ 6. I'm trying to set that aside, and I'm still not yet seeing the advantage over the current system, especially when he gives the examples, like building four libraries in one district. I would love to be able to build four libraries in some cases in a particular district because it's going to be a while before I can get to universities, which would otherwise increase my scientific output. I don't need to worry about constructing, say, a campus in three other cities if that library is going to get me the same thing in my one city, which has already grown and has decent production, which means it's going to be able to build a library more quickly. Therefore, I can benefit from the scientific output more quickly. So is there something I'm missing thus far in steps two and step three? This all seems just like, let's take the uniqueness out of everything. Yeah, so far it's just build anything at any time and anywhere. I.e., why even have districts? But okay, all right, let's see. Maybe step four of eight will enlighten us. The developers organize districts artistically to have a centerpiece and room for three to four buildings surrounding the centerpiece. Wonders in certain districts take up a whole hex. Yes. For him, quote, cities can only construct buildings and wonders in a district. Five plots exist in each district correlating with the district art, a center plot and four exterior plots. A city can only build a city center building in the center plot. Examples would be a palace, a courthouse, park, city square, castle, and monument. A city can subsequently build any other non-city center building types in the other four plots. So for me, we've now gone from game mechanics to part of it is art and how it's going to appear but now you're saying that in each district there are five plots, but I thought a district itself was on a quote-unquote plot, otherwise known as a hex. So the hex that doesn't have a district on it is one, and now the district has made that five? Am I missing something? Well, it's just this is the way that the game kind of works right now, is that each building in a district goes in a specific place on the district. And when you look at the empty district, you can see like the little placeholders where they left room for each building to go. So that's just what he's talking about. He's talking about the spots within the district where you can visually build a building. Okay, so... In terms of how you're presenting your points, that doesn't build on what we were saying in 1, 2, and 3. I kind of feel like that might like be a point 8, which is, by the way, this is how I'm going to visually represent this, but okay. Yeah, the big thing here is he's suggesting that you build wonders inside of districts, which I, I think is not in and of itself a bad idea. Like, I could maybe see that as maybe even being a good idea in some contexts, but yeah, like, so far, I'm, I'm not digging the rest of it. And if you're going to build a wonder within a district, I mean, right now as it is in Civilization VI, you can't just place a wonder anywhere. For a lot of them, you can't just place them anywhere. You have to have very specific combinations of things in order to be able to construct that. Typically, it's based on the terrain that's within a particular city's cultural borders. But sometimes it's, oh no, you need to do that. Plus, you need to have this building here too, for example. True. Building a wonder inside of a district could have some interesting strategies associated with it. So, for example, if a wonder takes the place of a building within the district, you know, this is talking about like the actual Civ 6 mechanics as they exist now, not this suggestion. But for instance, you've got wonders that require they be adjacent to a campus. 
you know, instead, maybe you make it so that that wonder is actually built inside of the campus and it takes the spot of either the library or the university. So you're getting a wonder instead of the library or the university. And, you know, there's maybe room for there being some interesting strategic decisions there. Oh, see, I thought, and then I started reading more about what he said in point number four, where buildings and wonders have size restrictions, buildings and wonders that are size one, use one plot, size two, two plots. Right. What I suggested is not what he's suggesting. What he's suggesting is just you build any wonder in any district, right? And the only thing is that there's the opportunity cost of you not having being able to build a building in that district. And some wonders might be larger than single buildings. So you might build a wonder that takes up two out of five of that district's capacity. There's two buildings that you're not able to build in that district, but then you've still got the problems of you're building anything anywhere, and there's no strategy associated with placement or what you choose to build. I guess within the suggestion itself, and now that we're talking about this, I'm actually starting to think of a particular strategy that this whole reconsideration of districts could apply, which was, let's say that this district you decide that even though it's not a campus district, you decide you're going to specialize it that way. So the advantage would be if you put your library in this particular district and it has five plots, let's say the library takes up one plot, the university is a little larger, it takes up two plots. Maybe you want to try to go for the great library. And if you place it in the district that already has the library and the university, then it would confer not just the bonus in and of itself, which you could otherwise place in another district, but because it happens to be adjacent to a library and university, you've got all the brainiacs side by side that you get an additional bonus. Okay. I don't think that's what he's suggesting, though. I'm jumping ahead to the later points, and that's not what I'm getting from this. Okay. At the very least, it has now got me thinking about how this could possibly have strategic value, still weighing the whether or not it would be better than what we currently have, but at least there's something starting to gel, and oddly enough, based on how it was initially represented visually, but it's not just being represented visually that way because it looks nice and neat and tidy that's actually connected to what's going on with the mechanics. Okay, so step five of eight of how it currently is, that citizens do not need to work districts and buildings for them to produce their respective great person points and yields. He suggests, so as to promote tall, play and keep district spam down, districts and buildings do not produce yields and great person points unless a citizen works the district tile. Districts left unworked for long periods of time automatically become pillaged, and if left unworked even longer, destroyed. Okay, I... I Having to work a district is an idea that I could get behind. Yes. I'm not so sure about the pillaging if you don't work it for long enough. But I could definitely see there being potential for you have to have the citizens to work your district in order to uh, be able to work it. And that would even make it so that you could lift the population requirements, because instead of having a hard limit or a hard threshold to allow you to build a new district, it's just you don't have the population to work it. So you can still build it, but it would be a waste because you can't work it. It always amazed me in the past. And I'm thinking Civilization Five, actually. And hey, guess what? As soon as you, you know, you settle a city, and as soon as you bring this natural wonder, I'm thinking like El Dorado. As soon as El Dorado is with inside your city's borders, you're getting this culture per turn. Okay, that's great, but there's nobody there overseeing what's going on there. So yeah, if you actually assign a citizen to that particular district. And you could say, if you want to do anything in this district, you've got to assign a citizen to it because somebody has to be in charge. Somebody's got to make the big decisions. The the guy or gal that's making the big bucks to make these choices. So that makes sense. Yeah, and you'd have to rebalance all the yields and stuff like that around that. For instance, you'd either have to make it so the districts themselves still produce food and or production from the underlying tile, or you would have to increase the amount of, uh, in particular, food 
that all the other tiles generate because you're going to need to be able to feed those population points that are you know now necessary to work in the uh, districts. That, and it brings back some of those specialists that we used to see, you know, even up to and including Civilization V, where it's like, oh, I want to be able to go and assign this uh, specialist with inside my university. Uh, and now that person isn't just generating, you know, plus one hammer that goes to whatever. No, this person is scientist. And which really we had in, in some measure in most Civ titles, even all the way back to Civilization One. I, I remember specialists that we had. And I kind of missed that. So, okay, I can get on board with that, that particular aspect. Step six. As it stands right now, districts and buildings can be pillaged, but never removed unless a city is raised. And he suggests that enemy units can pillage and subsequently destroy districts, buildings, and, wait for it, wonders. When an enemy raises <laughs> a city, the enemy destroys all of the city's districts, buildings, and wonders. A player can destroy any of its own districts, buildings, or wonders using gold. I'm actually okay with pillaging and maybe even destroying wonders because it happened in real life all the time. And it's a damn shame when it happens. Um, actually, have wonders ever survived the city being raised in Civ? I don't think so. They've never survived it being raised. But I remember in Civ 3, you could actually damage or destroy uh, wonders. And what would happen is the ruins of them would turn into tourist sites that would generate gold over the rest of the game. And you would do that through bombardment. So if you had a cannon or whatever and you were bombarding the city, you had a chance of either killing population destroying buildings or damaging wonders or something like that i see i would rather it be more deliberate i, I did not like how in yes. three it was a, a random chance of one of the things happening you know i would yeah. prefer if you can do that you have to specifically target the thing if, if they're going to be pillageable like that though then you should be able to put them inside walls so i think the way that you defend cities might have to be rethought yes uh so that you're building walls around districts as well as the city center yeah because uh, losing a wonder is a really, really big deal. I mean, you should definitely have an opportunity to repair a wonder that's been pillaged, but you'd also have to rebalance how all the wonders work, because there's some wonders that give you immediate effects when they're built. Like, for example, Stonehenge gives you the great profit. And oh, then yeah. there's other wonders that give you passive benefits. For example, the Colossus giving you the extra trade route. So if I pillage Stonehenge, does it do anything? I mean, I think Stonehenge maybe generates some faith points too, so you wouldn't be getting those faith points. But I already got the great profit. Whereas if you pillage the Colossus, then I lose my trade route capacity. It's a totally different magnitude of effect. So if Firaxis is going to make it so that you can pillage wonders, they've got to rethink how all the wonders work so that either every wonder has only passive effects or every wonder has a combination of an immediate effect and a passive effect so that when you pillage it, the passive effect is... well. It's like you can have different risks associated with having one wonder versus a different wonder. Well, that's certainly true as well. So it's not necessarily something that they have to do. It's just something that they would want to think about before they just willy-nilly put something like that in the game. Well, yeah, certainly, because it does change the game balance inherently between immediate effect wonders and resource over time wonders. Yeah, I mean, you'd you'd at least want to think about the implications of that, yes. (laughs) Yeah. All right, from point seven, as it stands right now, the cost of districts increases as the number of districts in your empire and other empires increases. He suggests the cost of districts never increase. Well, maybe this is from the current extreme that we have to another extreme. I mean, immediately I'm like, oh, yes, please, because right now it's what the flip is going on. (laughs) The scale of increase in cost is ridiculous. I think the balance is that laying down the empty districts would eventually be negligible, but the cost of buildings within that district would scale up over time. So universities are going to be more expensive than libraries and uh, research labs are going to be more expensive than universities. But if you're going to do that, then I would say that placing the district should just be immediate, kind of like how the builders have the charges and they just they don't have to spend time building the improvement. 
Just make it so that you spend one turn to plop down a district. If you don't want to increase it, just make it immediate, and you only pay the cost of the buildings. Seeing as how the district upon completion, as suggested here, gives you absolutely nothing other than to say that this is a district. It's just like you plop down a sign uh, in the yeah, middle you, of it's saying district. That's all you've done. Right. You, you shouldn't spend 20 turns building an empty district that's not going to give you anything. Going through all of these bullet points, I would say that at this point, districts should just be improvements. They plop down immediately when you place it. And then all you have to do is pay the production cost of the buildings that you're going to put in it. And those will go up as you research better buildings. There's some ideas within that I like. We've kind of fleshed it out a little bit and it's got us to talk about. Heck, even tie back to at least a couple of previous conversations on this show recently and not so recently. I'm still kind of feeling like, okay, you construct a district right now and it's instant and it's like future district site. And I'm thinking I can just kind of do that with this pin feature that's currently in the game. But anyway, let's take into account point eight. As it stands right now, buildings never increase in cost and their yields and bonuses never change over time. Whereas he suggests that A, buildings now discontinue when a better version of the same building becomes available and buildings do not obsolete and some can earn tourism if never destroyed. An example of the first one, currently libraries become available in the ancient era and never change in yield throughout playthrough. Now they become available in the ancient, renaissance, and modern eras. Each new version will have additional yields and bonuses compared to its discontinued predecessor. For instance, the ancient library has the current games and yield bonuses. The renaissance library has an increased science and great person yield. The modern library has an increase in yield and number of great writings it can hold. So if buildings discontinue, and you're talking about that each one of your districts creates five plots, so I've got an ancient library right here. So when it is discontinued, I'm taking that it is now taking up one of those slots and is doing nothing. It doesn't just automatically disappear because we've advanced to a new era. I'm assuming that it would work like walls, where you would start the project, you got the ancient library, you start the process to build the medieval library or whatever, and then when it's completed, it would just replace the ancient library, the same way that the medieval and renaissance walls work. I guess that's just another way of going about how I currently view a library, for example, which is... All libraries are more valuable earlier in the game because what it's giving you in terms of output has greater impact earlier in the game, given that it's an absolute value as opposed to a percentage. And that plus one is very valuable in the ancient era. You get to the Renaissance, and certainly by the modern era, it's not so much. It's still giving you that particular output because that is the era that it was designed for. That's the science output it's going to give you. I don't see why the library itself would discontinue. You could, however, say, I could have this ancient library continue to give me plus one, but guess what? I'm at Renaissance. I'm willing to take the time in order to upgrade, say, the library in my capital and a couple of other cities, which will either now give me plus two, or maybe it gives me an additional science output based on a percentage because there's something else going on in that city that could take advantage of that percentage. Or based on population. Oh Yeah, or based on population, so that it would then be worthwhile. I've got no issue with having a quote-unquote better library, and maybe you have to go and construct that better library, but it doesn't mean that the other one now discontinues. Yeah, we, we, we hate to bring real life up into this, but in real life, libraries do not get obsolete. They just upgrade their location and upgrade their library, the materials. <laughs> right. The other suggestion about buildings do not obsolete and some can earn tourism if never destroyed. Okay, so for example, a player has built numerous ancient libraries. Once Renaissance libraries are available, the ancient libraries still produce their original yields, are not made obsolete, and now a small amount of tourism. They do not automatically become Renaissance libraries. 
wait a minute, except you just said that buildings now discontinue when a better version of the same building becomes available, but now buildings do not obsolete. The double library. So I think by discontinue, he just means that you they become obsolete and you can't build them anymore. I don't think he's suggesting that they disappear. Okay. If, as I said before, the ancient library was quote-unquote good in the ancient era, you've now constructed all of the ancient libraries you're going to get. Yes, if, if you've got a better version of a library, you're probably not going to say, hmm, why don't we just go ahead and build the older version, you know, just because. Okay, that makes sense now that we're combining both of those things. But you also shouldn't have to build the new library in a different plot. You should be able to just upgrade the old library to be like, oh, yeah, well, we're installing computers now to supplement all of our books. He does say a player will have to make the decision of what is better, holding on to older buildings to rake in tourism or destroy them to make room for higher yielding modern buildings. So I guess abstracted then that that's if you decide to upgrade an ancient library to a renaissance library, then that renaissance library is in the same spot as the ancient library was. And it is now giving you this newer science output. So now you have to decide, do I really want, say, plus two or plus three science from this Renaissance library when it could instead be giving me plus two or plus three tourism along with the plus one science? Okay, now you see, that's a little bit more interesting because now it's not just about, I really should get around and upgrading my ancient library because it's really not giving me what it is that I need, yet you're now benefiting from the fact that, oh, well, I'll just wait and forget about these ancient libraries. I'm just going to push to Renaissance libraries because they're better. But because you don't have any ancient libraries, you're not going to get any tourism out of them because the Renaissance library, at least in the Renaissance, is not going to be generating tourism because it was just constructed and people are not really interested in visiting it simply because it's brand new. They're, they're there for the fact that it's science output. Whereas if you've had an ancient library for thousands of years and people know about it, it's like, wow, this ancient library is still around and they're keeping it. It becomes a bit of a tourist site and it's an attraction. It's less at that point about the science that it is now generating for your empire and more about the ooh and ahs that get tourists to come and spend their money. There's some potential there. But again, going back to the initial idea that districts is a blank canvas, I'm not seeing that. But the idea that Library is a library is a library throughout the entire game, and we go library, we go university, we go research lab to extend that a little more to have different eras of a particular building, just like eras of walls that we currently have for the city center. I think that's definitely worthwhile exploring. Yeah, and again, there's a couple other ideas in here that have some merit, like the idea of having to work district in order to get its uh, yields or adjacency bonuses. And the uh, idea of wonders being something that could be pillaged in order to take their effects away from an opponent. But uh, yeah, in, in general, I don't like the idea of just being able to plop anything anywhere at any time without there's just no really not all that much strategy associated with, uh, with where you put things in this outline. It seems almost more like it's about strategy within the district as opposed to strategy of placing the districts. And at that point, the map kind of becomes irrelevant, right? Like you're not getting your terrain bonuses so it doesn't matter whether you settle in your mountains or near jungles or near forests and that's something that i really like about civilization 6 how the map feels like so much more of an active part of the game because so much of what you do and what you build is dependent on what's available on the map and i would not like for that to be lost Episode 325 with Danny Q, Makalua, the me and team, 
Mega Bears fan, and Supremacy King, too. Right now I'm playing a good game as Germany, which is actually one of my favorite civs to play just because I love the Hansa, the production special district. And yeah, I'm playing a pretty good game. I got Brazil and France next to me. Brazil declared war on me early, as the AI loves to do. And the AI sent a bunch of warriors, but I had swordsmen. And my cities were walled, too, so I mean... <laughs> I'm curious to know, Brazil declared war on you. Was that after they forward settled you and then said, uh, hey, you're uh, too close to my borders? No. If I can describe the map, there's like a mountain range, and I'm on the east side of the mountain range. Oh. And both Brazil and France are on the west side of the mountain range. And they can reach each other, but Brazil decided to go after you. Correct. Now, after I made peace with Brazil, or I should say Brazil made peace with me, <laughs> Brazil did try to surprise war against France. So how large is this map? Are there other AIs on the map? Yeah, I think, well, it's a standard map. As far as I can tell, on my continent, it's just the three of us, me, Brazil, and France. And the other civs have their own continent to themselves. Well, it's not doing Brazil or France any good, or maybe even better, they'll just wear each other out and then you can divide and conquer them both. Or, heck, maybe if Brazil declared war on France, maybe uh, you build up and maybe France, you can uh, join the war against Brazil and at least uh, get rid of one of them to, uh, how are we going to phrase this, liberate their empire? <laughs> well, I mean, I am looking at whether or not I should try to conquer Brazil or France in the game. I feel like I could probably take them. Oh, well, if all else being equal, I'd, well, it's not that I would just declare war on Brazil. I mean, you might want to declare on both Brazil and France, maybe even at the same time, just for the hell of it. But if so, I would definitely declare war on Brazil first. I mean, they need a bit slap, clearly. <laughs> they we do. do now have that nice diplomacy option where you can join an ongoing war, and that'll earn you some diplomatic favor with France. So if That's you decide true. not to conquer them, you can maybe be an ally and trade partner with them for uh, the rest of the game until you do decide you have to conquer them if you're going to go for a domination victory. Well, Brazil and France did make peace now. Oh. Oh, okay. So follow up with us to let us know what happened. I, I'm still in the Renaissance era. What is France and particular Brazil's disposition towards you? Brazil, I actually have a little friendly face. Oh, so it is a fine line between love and war. Now, France has fine the indeed. found face, so I would go after France first. Ah, yes, that does make a difference. France is mad at me for forward settling against them. I settled, like, on the west side of that mountain range, close to France. Oh, and then they said, hey, stop settling towards us? Yeah. And what did you tell them? Did you say fine, or did you say, no, we're going to settle wherever we want? No, I said, yes, I will stop. And that's because I know that I'm not going to be building any more cities near them. <laughs> well, I guess my last question is right now, are you thinking your victory condition is conquest? Yeah. Or just for right now, just making the continent your continent? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I like to do that first. But in terms of conquering them, I will definitely let you guys know how the game ends. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month -month commitment. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. 
in North America, 301-637-7659. In Europe, 44-121-288-7659. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Record date assorted. 2018. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth Sound Clips, copyright Take 2 Interactive. Door Monster Clip, copyright Door Monster. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.